And the Bible tells us here in verse 20 of Isaiah 22, and it shall come to pass. By the way, that's what's going to happen to COVID-19. It shall come to pass. Amen? It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issues, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagon. And that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. Father, this morning, we thank you for the word of God. It is perfect. It is perfect converting the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This morning, I ask for your congregation today that we would desire your word more than gold, may than much, yea, than much fine gold. As Jeremiah, who was in a very dark place in his life, he discovered God's word. He said, thy word was found, and I did eat it. And it was the joy, rejoicing in my heart. Sanctify this congregation through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Break up the fallow ground of our hearts that we may receive the engrafted word which is able to save souls. Lord, I pray for the salvation of people watching today who don't have that certainty that they're going to heaven. I pray for confidence for those who have very little or no confidence. Faith for those whose faith has been shattered. Strength for those who are weak. Power from all, for all of us who need power. And may this morning in this message, he increase and we decrease. And Father, today, be glorified as the precious word of God, the timeless, eternal truths of your word are preached. We'll thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Chapters 13 to 24, 25 of Isaiah is Isaiah's prophecy of the nations. The nations he's prophesied against are nations that were oppressive, cruel, mean, destructive, and hurtful to the nation of Judah. This included Babylon, Ethiopia, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Egypt. God has just, if you've been with these messages... God has made some very, very stern statements about those nations. This morning we come to chapter 22 and we find a very interesting transition. The prophecy is not against a Gentile nation. The prophecy is against the nation of Judah. Judah, which means the praise of God. It is against God's people. It is against a nation who's watched the collapse and downfall of these pagan nations. The people of God who should have learned and hearkened from what they saw and what they heard from the prophecy of God to Isaiah. But they did not. And this prophecy is not only against Judah, but as we see in chapter 22, against the very city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. The centrality of our message this morning deals with a very simple thought. Who do you trust? Who do you trust 
when everything in your life has disappointed you, when everything in your life has failed you, who do you trust? Faith and trust are one and the same. It's always the same about the faith issue. You see, you get saved by faith. Without faith, you can't be saved. But after you're saved, you still are in this walk of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. Whosoever believeth on him is the most important step of faith. You must believe on him. We walk by faith and not by sight. Two words underscore all of Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith. It's either by faith or through faith. Listen, if we're going to make it in this life, it's by faith. If we're going to go farther for Jesus Christ, it's through faith. If we're going to reassemble as a church, it's through faith and by faith in him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Who do you trust in? Who is your hope in? This morning we see lessons about faith and who you should hope in. Notice, first of all, in chapter 22, as we look at verses 1 to 14, I want you to notice, number one, a transgressing country. A transgressing country, a transgressing congregation. The Bible starts off in verse 1. Notice chapter 22, verse 1. The burden of the valley of vision. Now every time you see the word burden, as we said before, the word burden talks about a heaviness about forthcoming judgment, about a difficult predicament that the one being given the prophecy to would be experiencing. And he's talking about here the city of Jerusalem in particular as the capital of all of Judah. If you know anything about Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a city on a hill. It was at a slope. It was on a mountain. And he starts off by talking about the burden of the valley of vision. Listen, Jerusalem was not in a valley per se geographically. They were on a mountain. Jerusalem, if you would, was surrounded by three different valleys. But a valley, everywhere you read in the Bible, is a picture of trials. It's a picture of struggles and difficulty in the Christian life. This prophet Isaiah, he said, the burden... The difficulty, the heaviness, the valley of vision. It was a vision about his people going through a time of a valley of trial and a valley of difficulty. And he asked them a question, what aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? That's a picture of people climbing to the very top of their house for safety and protection there. What aileth thee? What has sickened you? I think that's a good question for us to ask this morning as we consider the spiritual state of our lives and the spiritual state of our soul and the spiritual state of our country and the spiritual state of our church. What aileth thee now? We see Judah, a transgressing country. Notice in verse, verses 2 and 3, we see a sentence destiny. The vision that God gave to him gave him a vision concerning the ultimate destiny of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. As we read these verses, we realize the sentence is taking Isaiah more than 50 years forward. It's taking him to the point of time around, I believe, it's around the 11th year of King, King Zedekiah. When Nebuchadnezzar, after they had just pretty much had cut off the water supply and cut off the food supply, and a famine was in the land of Judah, and a famine was in the city of Jerusalem, at that time that Nebuchadnezzar chose a moment of time to come through the city, and he overtook the city. And you'll notice as we read these verses of Scripture that he took Zedekiah and his family and the, and the rulers of that city, and he took them captive there. Look what it says in verses 2 and 3. There art full of stirs, a tumultuous city. He said, things are all upside down in this city. He said, you're a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Listen, they were, they were, they're all the prophecies of Jeremiah leading up to this was telling them judgment was coming, judgment was coming. But they just kept on having revelry and banqueting and feastings and celebrations and drinking and a number of things like that. And he prophesies of their takeover. He says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar will not even need to draw a sword to take you captive. He says, the sword, the, thy slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. He said, you were not, you did not, you were not overtaken because of, because of battle. You were overtaken because of a famine. All thy rulers are fled together. That's talking about King Zedekiah. They are bound by the archers. That's very interesting. Archers are men who have their, their bows and arrows ready to shoot their arrows or flaming darts at the enemy. But they didn't even need to do that. The archers came down and bound them up and took them captive there. 
He said, all that are found in thee are bound together, which are, have fled from afar. I want you to understand, we see their sentence, destiny. Isaiah, as he's listening to God, is seeing the destiny of the nation unfold before him in the future. He would not live to see it, but he saw enough in that vision that it troubled him and it bothered him. He saw enough about their destiny that he had to declare, thus saith the Lord. May I remind you this morning, the Bible is a book of prophecy. The Bible is a book about our future. It tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. I want to tell you this morning, if you want to know about your future, if you want to know about your destiny, you need to look at Hebrews 9.27 this morning and understand that we're going to go through life once, and when we die, after this is the judgment. God told them, you've seen what's happened to Egypt, and you've seen what's happened to Ethiopia, and you've seen what's happened to Babylon, and you've seen what's happened to Edom, and you've seen what's happened to Philistia, and I want you to understand, it's going to happen to you too. The sense is destiny. May I say this morning, you ought to be concerned about your destiny. You ought to be living in anticipation of your destiny. You can't repeat yesterday. Get out of the past, amen? Live in the future. Live for today, but look at the future. We see in verse 4 a sorrowful distress. This distinguished Isaiah as a true prophet of God from all of the contemporaries he had in his day. We see the same of the prophet Hosea, who was a contemporary of his during that time, and the prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of his time. Therefore said I, look away from me. He told the people he was bitterly weeping. The Bible says, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to cover me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. He took in this vision very greatly. It bothered him. It riveted his soul. It shook the very foundations of his heart. And he told those around him, he said, don't, don't keep me from weeping. Don't try to comfort me. He says, I'm going to weep bitterly. Look away from me. Don't try to stop me from weeping. He said, I'm burdened and I'm broken about the spoiling of my people. I'm thankful this week was a week of good news, locally and nationally. Thankful the Alameda County Public Health Department on Monday declared under phase two that we could have what's called highly regulated driving gatherings. And that's a very legal, complex way of saying we can have drive-in services. I was describing it to one brother this week, and he said, Brother AJ, he said, he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, think of it like a drive-in theater, but except it's drive-in church, amen? Highly regulated. As soon as that hit, and I got a message from the health department, I, I prepared a letter, and I shot it over to the people next door to us about accessing using the parking lot for a drive-in service. And I gave all the details out and just doing our due diligence about what we're going to do and how we're going to highly regulate it. And I'm thankful that right not long after that, the owner got back to me and says, hey, what do you need? I'll take care of it. Amen. Friday I was on the telephone going over our plans and policies that we've spent several weeks on and just going over the final, the final touches of it and some things there and realizing the CDC needed to make some updates to it. And I was on the phone with Christian Law Association on, on Friday morning and with two of the attorneys there, good attorneys, good legal men. And just as we're talking, one of them said, Pastor Fong, wait a minute, wait a minute. The president just made an astounding announcement. I said, what did he say? He said he just declared the church is essential. Amen. He said church is essential, and he said not only is church essential, he says, I'm telling you every governor of the 50 states of this union, they need to open up this, they need to open up under phase two to let the churches reassemble. He said, listen, people need it for their psyche. Well, I think you need it for your soul, amen. He said they need it for their psyche, they need it for their soul. Listen, we need more prayer, not less prayer. But I'm going to tell you, as Isaiah was sitting there listening, watching what God was unfolding before his very mind, he was not filled with joy, and he was not filled with elation, and he was not filled with, with anger towards the people of God. He was burdened in his heart because they were in a state of decline, going farther from God, and his heart was broken because he saw their sentence destiny. I wonder this morning, are you broken in your heart about your condition? Are you broken in your heart about the state of America? 
Are you broken in your heart that COVID-19 has kind of suspended activity evangelistically for some of our missionaries and some of our churches, and some of them are not in a, in a situation like Heritage Baptist Church where they can just get up and with resolve get some things done. Some of them are very difficult situations that we're getting reports in. But then notice we see the sickening debauchery. Look at verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, God, the Bible says, the Lord God of hosts. That's a very, very strong description of God. He called his people to weeping and to mourning. And the men to shave their head for baldness. Hey, there was, there was a time, according to the Bible, that men shaved their heads for baldness for their soul and not for the style. They shaved their head for baldness, not because of a style, because there was sin. It was a national call of God for the entire nation to weep and to pray and to seek the Lord. And on this Memorial Day weekend, as we honor the fallen and those who were slain in war, and we think about the mighty that were fallen, may I remind you this morning, God calls you and me to prayer. God calls you and I to pray for revival and to pray for the holiness of God upon this nation. And you would think the call of God to his people to gird themselves with sackcloth and weeping and brokenness, you'd think that would have moved their heart. But notice what we see in verse 13. This is very, this is very disheartening. We see these people given over to a sickening debauchery, a sickening celebration. And God had called them to a state of national repentance in verse 13. Says, and, and he said, behold. He said, would you look at that? Behold joy and gladness and slaying oxen and killing sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. And they, they, they took on the Epicurean, Epicurean philosophy. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die. They said, so what? We died tomorrow. You know what their attitude was? They were totally indifferent to the state of affairs. They were totally indifferent to the message of God. May I remind you, here at this Baptist church, when we reassemble, and that's very soon, amen? When we reassemble, that is not a time to be indifferent. That is not a time to be careless. That is not a time to be lukewarm. That is not a time to be cold. That is not a time to be put everything under the scrutiny of your microscope and to, find, to nitpick and find fault with everything. That is the time for us to get on fire for God and get going for Jesus, amen? It's not time to be indifferent. It's not time to party, celebrate. I know we're going to be happy seeing all of our friends and all of our people there. And we're going to high five. Well, you can't high five. We won't let you touch each other. Amen. We might let you Bible bump. But God said, here, look at them. They're celebrating like the people did during the days of Noah before the flood came. Feasting instead of fasting. Banqueting instead of brokenness. Partying instead of praying. Who cares? Let's eat and drink and tomorrow we'll die. Well, there was a rich man in Luke chapter 12 said the very same thing. And God said to him, thou fool, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. But it gets a little bit deeper. We see the sentence destiny. We see the sorrowful distress. We see a sickening debauchery, but notice this if you would. Notice the stubborn dependence. Look at verses 8 to 11. And he discovered the covering of Judah. You'll find that recurrently mentioned. They, whenever you see that, they were trying to cover something up. And he discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Number one. The armor of the house of the forest was talking about the national armory that was inside the palace of God, the palace of the king. And there were the shields of brass, the shields of gold, excuse me. And there were their swords. And you know what they were saying? Listen, we've got this, this, this armory. We've got this field of this armor of the house of the forest. We could, we've got enough armory. 
and we've got enough chariots, and we've got enough horses, and we've got enough spears, and we've got enough habergens, and we've got enough swords, and we've got enough whatever it may be, their modern-day artillery. We've got enough to go to battle no matter who comes. That's self-dependence. As Americans, we get a little riled up when things start to happen. We tout our NRA stickers, don't we? And we like to talk about, well, we better get ready. And we're sensitive to what's going on as, the, as there's all this attack on these things like that. And then we like to talk about the national defense system and the billions and billions and billions of dollars our country spends. And we have to spend that kind of money for our military defense, and we've got to be strong. But there comes a time when our trust and dependence is more on the armor of the house of the forest than it is on the God of the Lord of hosts. Then he says something else about their dependence. They were depending on their military armament their military defense, and then he says something else in verse 9. He said, you've seen all through the breaches of the city of David. Now, who caused those breaches? That was the Babylonians. The Babylonians, notice in verse 9, he says that they are many, and you gather together the waters of the lower pool. Listen, when you attacked an enemy, you know what you did? You went after the water supply. You studied them before you made the attack. And there are two things you'd go after. Number one, you'd want to cut off their food supply by taking their land. And you find that many times in the Old Testament when their barley fields or their wheat fields were attacked or their vineyards were attacked. And the second thing you'd want to do is you want to attack their water supply. If you can take their water, you take their food, you've got them crippled. And that, Judah was, Jerusalem here in this case, was under this circumstance, this great pressure. And so they decided, we've got to come up with something. So they consulted with the engineers within the city, and they consulted with the wise men of the city. And they said, here's what we're going to do. Let's fix up the breaches thereof and gather together the waters of the lower pool. They just didn't do that, but notice they did something else. They were depending on their water, their ingenuity for their water supply. They were looking to all the swords and shields and habergens and spears they had to defend them. But then something else. Remember we read about the breaches that were in the city? That meant the walls were being broken down. That meant, the, that meant they, they realized there were, their defense system, their wall, the perimeter of their wall was weakening. You read later on in 2 Chronicles when Nebuchadnezzar broke down the walls, it was not very difficult for him to break down those walls and burn those gates. That's why Nehemiah was so broken because he saw not only the charred remains, he saw way back before that, he saw how the weakening of the defense system happened. And he said in verse 10, you've numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall. Here's what he said to them. You know what you've done? He said, now you're looking to your armament and you're trying to fix the water supply. In fact, Later on in verse 11, he talks about them digging a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. He's talking about the fact that they tried to dig a ditch to fix their problem. Symbolically, what a picture. They're digging to try to re-divert the water. They're digging their own hole. And now they had surveyed the houses around the area. They needed more material to shore up the wall because they saw the wall was, started, was very weakening. So they thought, let's fix the breaches in the wall. Let's tear down some houses and fix it up. You know what they're guilty of? They were guilty of the stubbornness of dependence. Here's our problem. We stubbornly do everything our way before we get God involved. We trust God after we've seen the doctor. We trust God after we've gone into farther debt. We trust God after we made a decision that did not have the blessing God upon it. We used an old cliche, I prayed about it, but you didn't get God's approval. You went ahead without God's blessing. And I'm going to tell you this morning, it's stubborn dependence that gets God's people in trouble more often than not. It's stubborn dependence that gets a preacher in trouble. It's stubborn dependence that gets a pastor in trouble. It's stubborn dependence that gets those who've been saved for long periods of time in trouble because we think we have it down. We think we know more than God. We think we know more than the man of God. We think we know more than the counsel of God, so we stubbornly depend upon ourselves. And listen, that's how we dig our own ditch and we fall into it thereof. But then we see the sobering disclosure I want you to understand, as we read these first 13 verses, it is not pretty. Amen. Because God is talking to a people he loves. And I want to tell you this morning, God loves us. Aren't you glad about that? God is love. God is love. That is his essence. 
That is who he is. But God is also light, and in him dwelleth no darkness. Look at verse 11. God had just told them about their stubborn dependence. He told them, your trust in your defense system is going to fail you. Your trust in trying to redivert your water supply is going to fail you. Your trust in trying to rebuild the walls and dig a ditch is not going to help you. Notice in the latter part of verse 11, he says, but. Number one, but you have not made, you have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. You know what he's saying? You have not looked to God. You have not looked to your creator. You have not looked unto the maker thereof. That is sad. When you think about the humble beginnings of that nation, you think about how God sustained them. I was reading this morning my devotions today and yesterday. How under King Rehoboam, the kingdom split. Rehoboam made a big mess. But in spite of that, he fortified all the cities of Judah and Benjamin because he, he was the southern kingdom and there were only two, two there, it was just basically of the tribes, only Judah and, and, and Judah and Benjamin were together. And I read about Rehoboam's passing, then I get to chapter 13, and we see his son Abijah come to, to the throne. And, and Abijah, for the most part, was a good king, and he, he took a stand against Jeroboam, and it was a good stand. You've got to read 2 Chronicles 13. And he made this statement, he said, but God himself is for us as our captain. But that's not what they're saying here. Now they've gone far away from where Abijah was at. You have not looked unto your maker thereof. Hey, are you looking to God for your help? Are you looking to God to direct you? Are you looking to God to lead you? You have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned long ago. He said, you know what he's telling you? God didn't fail in the past. He's not going to fail you now. But you're not looking. You're reading your portfolio, you're reading your statements, you're reading the Wall Street Journal, you're reading the news that's coming out, you're reading all the stuff that's going on. You know more about COVID-19 than you do about the Word of God. You know more about being a PhD in some, some area that's going to burn one day than you, know, than you are about the Word of God itself. And so we go down to verse 14 and notice the Bible says this. And it was revealed in my ears by the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah saying, pre preaching now. And it was revealed in my ears by the Lord of hosts. He said, surely this iniquity, what iniquity? Everything we just talked about. He said, listen to this. I mean, this is startling. I mean, this is earth shattering. He said, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you. You know what God said there? You're past the place of forgiveness. Whoa. Whoa. You better listen to me this morning. That's a, scriptural, that's a scriptural principle right there. He said here, look at verse 14. He said, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord. You know what he's talking about there? It's found in 1 John 5, 16 and 17. It's called the sin unto death. It's called the sin unto death. Not a very popular subject. The sin unto death is when you've heard the word of God and you have blatantly and disobediently and defiantly and rebelliously have turned from God and you stay in your stubborn ways. You keep on depending upon yourself. You keep on living in sin. And God comes to the point, he says, I've told you all I could tell you. I've extended my hand of mercy for many years and many months and many days. And he says, I'm at this place now. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die. He says, you know what? You've just dug your own hole. What a sobering disclosure. Sin unto death. 1 John 5, 16 says, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Isaiah knew that doctrine. Who do you trust in? I mean, come on, who do you trust in? Can you trust in your city? Can you trust in your city leaders? Can you trust in your country? Can you trust in your government? Can you trust in the corporation? Can you trust in the institutions? Can you trust in the hospitals? Can you trust in the pharmaceutical companies? Can you trust in Wall Street? Can you trust in the Federal Reserve? Hey, I'm asking you this morning, who do you trust in? Who do you trust in? Where's your hope in? We see a transgressing country, but secondly, what you notice is we see a treacherous controller. Verse 15, thus saith the Lord God of hosts. He's telling Isaiah, go get thee to this treasurer. Even unto Shebna, which is over the house.
Shebna was a man in a trusted position. The Bible tells us enough to know a lot. He was the treasurer over the house of Hezekiah and the nation's finances. He knew where every dollar went. The people trusted him. Did you know that Shebna was the second most influential man in all of Judah next to Hezekiah? He was in a trusted position. And the people were thinking as now the message of God comes to Isaiah to talk about Shebna. They're thinking, well, I guess you know, the institutions are going to fail us and the, the corporations are going to fail us, but there's got to be somebody we can trust in. And when the name Shebna came up, listen, everybody thought, well, Shebna's a man we can trust and Shebna's a man whose word is true and Shebna seems to have the right face on the camera and Shebna seems to have the right message. But God had a word about that because God revealed his tricky ploy. And God says here in verse, 15, verse 16, he says, Now Isaiah, you need, to go to she- you need to go to Shebna, which is over the house. You need to tell this man and confront him while he's in his office. And he came to him and he says, What hast thou here? And that's what God does. There's nothing hidden from God. There's nothing he does not see. Years later, years later, the same prophet would go to King Hezekiah and he'd ask a very similar question. What have they seen in thine house? And the tricky ploy of this man was, as Isaiah came to him, he came to him while Shebna was standing outside of a sepulcher that he built for himself, if you can imagine this. And what Shebna done, he had taken, he had diverted money from the national treasury. He'd taken pilfered money out of Hezekiah's coffers and taxes the people that paid. And what he did, he did something that men of wealth and influence did in those days to build a big name for themselves. You see, they wanted to be, they wanted to be remembered for leaving something behind. They wanted to be remembered for a legacy, that in that legacy that they built a sepulcher. Men wanted to be remembered by building, carving out this, by, by digging this big hole inside a, a rock there and digging that hole out and enshrining it and putting their name on it and entombed on it so people would come by and they would say, what a great man this was. Look at this tomb that was erected. That, 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 that deifies this man and glorifies this man. And what Shebna was really doing with the national money, the national affairs, was he was trying to get the worship and the adoration of the people towards himself. He was stealing the hearts of the people, not from Hezekiah, but from God himself. The Bible says here, would you notice verse 16? What is thou here and whom hast thou here? The work construction was being done right then. They were digging that hole in the rock that, that thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher. As he that hewed them out a sepulcher on high, and that grave of the habitation of himself in a rock. Listen, Shebna wanted to leave behind a legacy that said to everybody in that time that he was a wealthy man, and he was an influential man, and a powerful man. And he said here, I want to be known because my body is in the tomb. Hey, thank God this morning, I've got a Jesus. His body's not in the tomb. His body came out of the tomb. We don't worship a man whose body's in a tomb. We worship a risen Savior who came out of that tomb. Glory, hallelujah. I want people to come to worship my tomb, Shepna said. I have my name inscribed over that. Listen, Jesus didn't even own a tomb. It was a borrowed tomb, but he came out of that tomb alive. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Some of you are living your life for people to remember you. You're trying to build a legacy on some shaky material there. You're trying to dig out a hole somewhere. Let me tell you this morning, there's only one deserving of our honor. There's only one deserving of our glory. There's only one deserving of worship, and that's the Jesus who rose again from the dead. Shebna is a type of the Antichrist. He's a type of the Antichrist. Blind you the minds of them that believe not. I want you to understand it. I'm not done yet with Shebna. But just on this second thing, the tricky ploy. Everybody who had confidence in this man 
their confidence has been shaken like an earthquake, like a 9.0 on the Richter scale earthquake. That lasts, a 9.0 earthquake that lasts for, for over 60 minutes. The Antichrist, when he comes, wants his mark on people's foreheads or their hands. The Antichrist, when he comes, he wants your adoration and your worship. The Antichrist, when he comes, is a demonically energized man. He's a man that people will bow and worship to. He'll be seen as a, the, the author of peace, and, and he'll be seen as the one who can, who can, who can originate peace. But I'm going to tell you, he may be able to produce temporary peace, but he's not the prince of peace. God was shaking them up and telling them, you've got your trust in the wrong place. Who do you trust? Then we see his tragic plummet. God said to him in verse 17, you're going to be part of that captivity too. Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes Zedekiah, you're going to captivity too. But God says something else. Look at verse 18. This is pretty, this is pretty colorful. He says, he will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. He says, God's going to bounce you up and down like a basketball, son. He's going to throw you as a football way across the field. There ain't nobody there to catch it. Toss thee like a ball into a large, large country. And he says, there thou shalt die. Notice, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. You say you're building a sepulcher so everybody can worship you and everybody can adore you. Here's what I'm going to do to you, Shebna. He said, listen, I'm going to bring to shame your chariots of glory. Listen, this guy took a lot of the national money, a lot of the national money, a lot of Hezekiah's money, and he bought him chariots. He built a sepulcher for his name. He lived lavishly like the rest of the people that were, were living like that time. But notice verse 19. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. He knew he said, I'm going to bring you down, son. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? The people's dependence and a trusted leader, they're devastated. He failed them. The people's trust in a nation that supposedly had the blessing of God, it failed them. Let me remind you this morning, popularity will fail you. Promotion will fail you. Institutions will fail you. Riches will fail you. Politics will fail you. Medicine prescriptions will fail you. Doctors will fail you. Hospitals will fail you. doesn't matter. People will fail you. Who do you trust? Well, I'm thankful to tell you this morning there's somebody we can't trust. Amen. I'm thankful to tell you this morning we have a trustworthy Christ. I'm thankful to tell you this morning that when institutions fail you and people fail you, there's a Jesus who does not fail you. Notice in verse 20, 25, as we come to the last part this morning, this is the best part. You better hang on to your seat. Amen. The Bible says now, you notice in verse between 19, verse 19, 20, there's a pause there. God's people, man, everybody in the nation, they're like, oh, man, we, Isaiah, are you really for real? Institutions have failed us and individuals failed us. Who do we trust in? God came to them. He says, you'll come to pass. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Eliakim's very name means God raises up. God raises up. God raises a man. Listen. This man, Shebna, was a self-appointed man. This man, Eliakim, was a man that God raised up. God called him. God put him in that place. Eliakim, as we study him, as we see Shebna, Shebna was a type of the Antichrist. Eliakim is a type of the real Christ. He is a type of the true Christ. He's a type of the trustworthy Christ. He's a type of the Christ of glory, the Christ, the hope of all glory. He's a type of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God knew that the people's hopes had been devastated, and God knew they needed to have hope they could hang on to. So he tells them about this pandemic 
and Hilkiah. Number one, he calls him my servant. Unlike, unlike this man, this man Shebna, who was a selfish leader. We see, we see Hil- uh, Hil- uh, Eliakim, who was a servant leader, a great picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, and whom I so delight. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is a perfect servant of God. You want a model for servants? You want a model for service? Study Jesus. Study Jesus. And he said in verse 21, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. You know what he's saying there? Hey, listen, Shebna disappointed you. He put on the robes of a treasure. He had fancy, fine-spun clothing. But I've got a man. His name is Eliakim, and I'm going to give him thy robe, and I'm going to give him thy girdle. You know what that is? That's a picture of the high priest. Thank God Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Thank God Revelation 1.13 tells us, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the patch with a golden girdle. I thank God this morning that Jesus, Eliakim is a picture of our Jesus, Jesus who's our great high priest, the Old Testament high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to bring a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of people. But thank God when Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, he gave himself, if you know what I mean. He gave himself, not for his sins, but for our sins. Why? Because he's a great high priest. He's a high priest that was sinless who died for the sins of every other person, for every person. But it gets better than that. He says in verse 21, and he says, and, w- and I will commit thy government into his hand. Now the government had failed. But he's saying there's one coming. There's one that shall come to pass. His name is Eliakim. He's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one Isaiah remembered God telling him in Isaiah 9, 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Amen. Hey, I want to tell you this morning, the government of our Lord Jesus Christ during that great millennial period will be a government that has no corruption. It'll be a government that has no politics. It'll be a government that doesn't have to need to raise taxes. It's a government that will not fail. He says, I will give the government into his hand. I'm telling you this morning, you can trust in Jesus. Then he said, look at verse 21. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Now, a picture of a father, a good father. He gives light, not darkness. The Bible says in James chapter 1, he's the father of lights in whom there's no variable, is neither shadow of turning. A good father is steadfast. A good father is sure. A good father builds a foundation. A good father makes sure his children are on the right path. A good father does not wear out his children. He's asked them. A good father loves his children. A good father takes care of their inheritance. A good father loves them, and he, and he loves them, and he cares for them. And he's saying here, listen, this Elijah will be a father to the nation. They needed someone who would have a, be a fatherly figure, someone they could trust. And just the idea of a father, man, you can trust him. Listen, and thank God Jesus is the everlasting Father this morning. But it gets better than that. He's the perfect servant, and he's the great high priest because of the girdle and the robe given to him. And he's a, the government is upon his shoulder, and he's the everlasting Father. I like verse 22. <coughs> and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. You know what he's saying there? Listen, Shebna, Shebna had the keys taken from him. But the key given to Eliakim represented authority. Anybody's got keys, know that's authority. Listen, uh, you don't have a car key, you can't run your car. You don't have a house key, you can't get in your house. You depend on somebody else to get the keys. Every time I don't have a key, I have to ask Brother Daniel. Brother Daniel got the key, he's got the authority, Amen. But I'm telling you this morning, he said about Eliakim, I'm going to put the key of the house of David. you understand what that means? He said he gave him access to all the treasury of the house of the man of God. He gave the treasury of the house of all the king. He has the key that opened the national treasury. He said, listen, I can trust him and you can trust him. Aren't you glad today all power is given unto Jesus Christ? One of our good members who is a teacher now in a Christian school when that member was in a Christian school, had a teacher get up and made a heretical statement. And it went something like this. Well, Jesus really didn't have, really didn't have any power. 
And I'm glad a student got up in that class. He said, well, how do you explain where it says in Matthew 20 and 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Authority is not in a Christian school. Authority is in the church. Get out of your hee-haw chapel services and get into the Word of God. He said, I put the key of David on him. And I want you to understand, Eliakim is a picture of Jesus Christ. Who can you trust? You can trust in Jesus this morning. He's the perfect servant. He's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect ruler. He's the perfect father. He's all powers given him, but it gets better than that. Look at verse 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Now that imagery doesn't mean much to us. If you've done any carpentry, you've done any nailing, we think of those little, little, little thin nails. You know what I'm talking about? And now we don't even use hammers most of the time. We use a nail gun, amen? Thank God for inventions, Amen. But the idea here, you got, and you can see this, you go over there, you, you'll read over in Judges 4 and 5 about Jael. And the idea there of a nail meant a, meant a tent nail, a tent peg, almost equivalent to a railroad tie. And what you would do is, there's the fabric of the tent that you'd stretch until the tension was, you couldn't stretch anymore. And then attached to the tent would be a rope or some kind of security like a rope or a nylon cord of some kind, and you would stretch it as far as you can. You'd stretch it until all the tension was out. I mean, you stretch it as far as you can, and then you would take this, you would take this peg, you would take this nail, and you would wrap it around it, and then you'd drive it into the ground, and as you drove it to the ground, it had all that tension on it. The tension could not be pulled, and you knew that the place, the tent was secure, and the line was secure when you would shake it, and you would pull it, and you'd even put a horse to it, but it couldn't jerk it out. That was a nail in a sure place. And you know what he's saying there, brother and sister in Christ? Jesus Christ is a nail in a sure place. Jesus Christ is a nail in a sure place. You can hang your hopes on him. He won't fail you. You can trust in him for your future, and he won't fail you. You can put all your fears upon him. He won't fail you. Why? Because he's a nail in a sure place. All the tension may be there, but nothing could shake him. Listen, Jesus is the nail in a sure place for your storms. And Jesus is the nail in a sure place for COVID-19. And Jesus is the nail in a sure place if your finances are dwindling. And Jesus is the nail in a sure place if your faith is small. And Jesus is the nail in a sure place if you're in the hospital. And Jesus is the sure place is the nail in a sure place if you're going through cancer and Jesus is the nail in the sure place if your faith is getting smaller and smaller and smaller it doesn't matter I thank God today you can trust in Jesus what about him my hope is Jesus the rock of my salvation the lily of the valley he's the holy sinless son of God look at it again in verse 23 I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Hey, I thank God this morning that when I think about the nail in a sure place, I think about those nails that were riven in his hands and the nails that were riven in his feet that nailed him to the cross. I want to tell you this morning, those nails, those cruel, terrible, malicious soldiers, they pounded those nails in his hands and they pounded the nails into my wonderful, loving Jesus into his feet and they hung him on the cross. Listen, those nails represent the fact that he suffered and died for your sins and mine and the blood that flowed out of his wounds, those were bloods, that was atoning blood, that was sin-cleansing blood, blood. There is power in the blood. I'm thankful the nail in the sure place is Jesus sending up on high and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that means? The work of God is finished. The work of Jesus Christ was finished on the cross and from his resurrection from the dead. My hope is Jesus. Amen. Where's your hope this morning? You, are, you have a Shebna that's going to fail you. You've got a nation that's going to fail you. You've got a capital that's going to fail you. But listen, there's an Eliakim. His name is Jesus. And my hope is in Jesus this morning. The nail in a sure place. Hey, he's the nail in a sure place for a failed marriage. He's the nail in a sure place if your grades are failing. He's a nail in a sure place if you're insecure and sucking, sucking your thumb, don't know where to go. He's a nail in a sure place if you feel like you're a failure. He's a nail in a sure place if you're dwindling in, in just excitement and enthusiasm for God. He's a nail in a sure place if you're living a lukewarm life. He's a nail in a sure place if you need cleansing and forgiveness. You can hang your hopes on him. You can hang your future on him. You can put your faith in him because he's a nail in a sure place. My hope is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. 
You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your burdens. You can trust him with your sickness and disease. You can trust him by going to heaven. You can trust him about your worries and anxieties. Did you know you could trust him for your daily bread? You can trust him for the big and the small. He's a nail in a sure place. My hope is Jesus. The anchor of my soul. The rock of my foundation. The one who's in control. My hope is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. Is your hope in Jesus? You trust in him? Is he your nail in a sure place? Federal Reserve is going to fail you. Jesus, is a rock, he's a nail in a sure place. The real estate market is going to fail you, but Jesus is a nail in a sure place. The Securities Exchange Commission is going to fail you, but Jesus is a rock in a sure place. He's not up and down. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a nail in a sure place. Take off your burdens. Those heavy burdens you have. And put it on the nail in a sure place. Casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. He's a nail in a sure place. Trust in the Lord with all that heart. Lean on into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He shall bring it to pass. Delight thyself also in the Lord. And he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. My hope is Jesus. Friend, those nails were driven in his hand, both his hands and his feet. The Bible uses a very beautiful word. It's called propitiation. It's called atonement. He secured our salvation, the hope of going to heaven, the nails in a sure place. He's our nail in a sure place so you can be saved and so you can go to heaven. Why are you waiting? Why are you trusting your good works? The Shebna's fail. The cities fail. The institutions fail. Jesus never fails. How about it this morning? Stop running from God. He's a nail in a sure place. God said, I'll raise up my servant Eliakim. God raised up this church for this morning so that you can hear the gospel and be saved. Listen, today on May 24th, it could be a great memorial day if you just trust Christ this morning as your Savior. You repent of your sins and call on the Lord to take away your sins and make you a child of God. Christian friend, don't, don't sit there at home. This is not home entertainment. This is church of the living God. Once you have complete faith in him, he's a nail in a sure place. And by the way, if you look at verse 25, he says there's a day when only one person can remove that nail. You know what he's saying there? There's a day it'll be too late to put your trust in Jesus. It'll be too late to hang your hopes on him. Today is the day of salvation. Today is when you need to put your hope in the Lord. He's a nail in a sure place. Would your hope be in Jesus? Because when you get saved, he's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the living hope that he puts in every heart. Christian friends, time for us. Make sure we're holding on to that nail in the sure place.